And hello and welcome to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and we're on the web at KUCI.org and on iTunes at College Radio. Today is Wednesday, December 19th. 2012. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and my guest for the entire hour is novelist John Banville. John is the author of 15 previous novels and has been the recipient of the Man Booker Prize, the James Tate Black Memorial Prize, the Guardian Fiction Award, the Franz Kafka Prize, and a Lannan Literary Award for Fiction. He lives in Dublin, and his latest book that will be the focus of our discussion today is Ancient Light published by Knopf. Let's bring him on. Hi, John. Good morning. Good morning. Great to have you with me. Um, let's begin by hearing the, about the genesis of ancient light. Where did the story come from? Oh, Lord. The trouble is I can never remember where <laughs> stories came from. Um, I seem to be always on the way to making a book. Uh, you know, it's... It, it, when I look back, I never see a point at which I began. I mm-hmm. suppose there must have been a spark, there must have been characters, but I can never remember that. I'm always just writing. Yeah, well, you know, that that is along the lines of something I read in, a, in an interview on you that I think I just read this morning, actually, and, and that is that, um, just as you say, you're... You, Basically, any book that you've read, you no longer like, and you're always looking forward. And that's, that's interesting. Well, I like lots of books that I've read, but ones that I've written, I don't much like. Yeah, yeah, that's what um, I mean. <laughs> the, uh, in a way, there's only one book, you know. You start out, and you try to get it right. You don't quite get it right, so you do another, another volume in this large book that you're going to spend your life doing. And, uh, you know, when I finally uh, end up and I'm on my deathbed, I hope to be like Henry James. They said that when he was in coma, dying, that his hand was still moving across the counterpane, mm. uh, writing. I hope to be like that, and I hope to be like, uh, yes, I, just, I hope to be writing still. Yeah, um, in terms of Henry James, is he sort of your influence, your most major influence? Well, I don't think there's ever a major influence. He's certainly an influence that nobody ever seems to notice. Everybody talks about, you know, how I'm influenced by Beckett and Bokoff and Joyce and so on. But nobody ever notices the real influence, which is Henry James and Yeats, I suppose. They're the two people whom I admire most. But yes, Henry James is, I think, the greatest novelist. He was uh, the first great modernist, I think. And then, uh, unfortunately, people didn't follow him. They became seduced after the First World War by the joys of the avant-garde and uh, branched off in that direction. And nobody, nobody major anyway, followed Henry James, which I think was a great mistake. Hmm. Um, in terms of ancient light, your protagonist, Alex, um, the, the point of view, um, writing about him, as a 15-year-old uh, who, who falls for his friend's mother, a 35-year-old, and, and then back to his current day, which he's an actor, he's, he's going to be in a film, his first film. Can you talk about the point of view and how you came to that, or, or if you knew anybody like Alex, or, you know, sort of how the character developed? Well, of course, all the characters in all my books are me. They have to be. They're aspects of me because I'm the only material that I have to work with. I'm the only person that I know from the inside, and that knowledge is not very extensive either. Uh, but, yes, all characters are generated out of oneself. Uh, Alex seems to me somewhat shallow. Um, he's an actor, not necessarily. <laughs> actors are shallow. But uh, he is, and he, he doesn't see himself very clearly. But then who does? He's in a bad place. He and his wife, Lydia, uh, are still mourning the death of their daughter ten years previously. Uh, Cass, Cass leave, uh killed herself in Italy inexplicably, inexplicably to them and to the parents. So they're still grappling with this. And, and uh, of course, when you're in trouble, especially when you're a man in trouble, you immediately retreat to the far past. So Alex conjures up from 
50 years previously, this affair with uh, his best friend's mother. Um, yes, and that, I suppose, he's trying to escape. I like to think that in the effort to escape, he discovers a few truths about himself and about the world. But that's what every novelist hopes, probably in vain. Hmm. Well, I'm also curious about your path to fiction because um, if if what I read is accurate, you um, you didn't go to college. You worked as a journalist for a bit, and um, you have an you're an incredible stylist. And I'm just so curious how you found your way to fiction. Oh well, I started writing fiction when I was about twelve, I think, twelve, thirteen. I had read Joyce's Dubliners. I was suddenly struck by the fact that that novels, uh, you know, the fiction could be about life, life as I knew it, uh, that it didn't have to be Wild West stories or detective stories or boys' school stories, that it could actually be about ordinary life. This was a great discovery for me. I immediately started to write dreadful imitations of, of those stories in, in Dubliners, and uh, I kept on. I've been plugging away for the past... 50 years and more trying to get it right and I feel that maybe at last I'm beginning just beginning to learn how to write Hmm. if I keep at it for another 50 years I might get there (laughs) but that's how I I think for me reality was and is only reality when it's filtered through the mesh of words Hmm. Uh, language seems to me all important there are worse ways of of grappling with the world than interpreting it through language of course, insofar as one can interpret, because as I always say, you know, the world is round, but language is square, mm. and it's a very difficult square circle to square. Um, do you regret not going to college? You know, there's just oh, such a... Oh, I do now, yes. But you do I, now? What I regret is not having had those three or four years of being a student, you know, mm-hmm. being drunk and falling in love and mm-hmm. making a fool of myself and all that, you know, things... <laughs> students do, as you know, sitting there on that campus. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, I, I, I missed that. I went to work too early. But then, regrets are foolish. You know, we are what we are. We do what we do. I would have been an entirely different person, I'm sure, if I'd gone to college. I probably would have been more timid in the face of material. I probably wouldn't have had the nerve to tackle subjects like the lives of the astronomers Copernicus and Kepler, as I did in early novels. Um, you know, I was sort of blissfully ignorant and courageous in my ignorance. So perhaps it was the best thing. But I do regret that, you know, that missing those few years of fun at the beginning of my adult life. Do you ever wonder how your writing um, would have changed by the workshop, the environment of the workshop? You mean creative writing workshop? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I mean, I think in, in, in master's uh, programs, no, you I hear an awful lot about how everybody writes to the group as opposed to staying sort of true to their story and their own voice and such. I can't imagine such a thing. I really can't imagine such a thing. Uh, to me, writing is an entirely solitary business. It's between me and the blank page and my store of words and... Uh, Writing to the group, you know, even the thought of it makes the hair stand up <laughs> the back of my neck in horror. Um, no, I couldn't do that. I suppose I'm too arrogant for it. Mm. Um, but I also feel, as I say, I'm convinced that writing is a solitary business mm. and that one has to be one's own judge. You know, writer, young writers write to me and say, you know, will you help me? Will you give me advice? I say, you know, there's no help for it. You know, if you're going to be a writer, you'll be a writer and you'll do it yourself. Nobody else will help you. Maybe an agent will will point you in the right direction. Maybe a friendly publisher will publish something of yours. We all need that. But that's business help. Mm -hmm. Doing the work itself, there is no help. Mm. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Writers on Writing. I am with John Banville, and his most current novel is Ancient Light, uh, published by Knopf. I, I was curious to find out that you also write under the name Benjamin Black, uh, a mystery, a, a crime series. Yes, I do. I worked. I made a living uh, for about thirty-five years working in journalism. I was. I never wrote journalism. I was a copy editor. I was one of those people whom <clears throat> one of my editors described as <clears throat> people who change other people's words and go home in the dark. <laughs> so I was a copy editor, that much hated figure in journalism. Uh, but it was a good way to live. I worked on daily papers, therefore I worked at night. I would work from 
5 till midnight or 8.30 till 4 in the morning, uh, and I would do my own work during the daylight hours. I still can't write after dark. I have to write during the daylight. That was a good way to live. It was hard. It was hard work. It was a hard life, but uh, it was full. I was never bored. And then I stopped. And then I became literary editor of the Irish Times, books editor in, in uh, oh, I don't know, the late 90s. Uh... And, uh, no, the early 90s, what am I talking about? Early 90s, God, losing track. <laughs> uh, and I spent about 10 years doing that, which was great fun as well. It became less fun as the years went on because I got stale and I felt I'd seen every book that was ever published and, you know, that nothing new could possibly come my way. So then I gave up and I became a full-time writer. I mean, I was always a full-time writer, but I actually didn't go out in the house to work at another job. And, uh... You know, uh, I needed someone to do a day job for me. So I invented Benjamin Black uh, on a whim, I think. Uh, my agent suggested, you know, had I ever thought of doing crime fiction. I had begun to read George Simenon, his, what he called his hard novels, not the Maigret books. I've never man managed to finish one of those. But his hard novels are superb. And I was astonished at what could be achieved with such a small vocabulary and in declaratory style and, um, you know, in, in simplicity. And I decided I would try it. This was around 2005. Coincidentally, my book, The Sea, won Man Booker that year, but by then I had finished the first Benjamin Black book, and I didn't know that I would do any more, but I've just finished, what is, I think, the sixth one. It's great fun. It's great. Uh, it's entirely different to writing as Dan Paul. Black Black's books are driven by plot, by dialogue, by character. Uh, Banvill's books are, well, I don't know what they're driven by, but not by those things. I like to think that uh, Banvill's books, Black's books are about what people do, Banvill's books are about what people are. Hmm. Yeah, I'm so curious to read um, one of the Benjamin Black books, or all of them, who knows. But um, I, I find find it interesting because I'm so curious about how your style differs between the two books. You know, in terms of your your ancient light is so very poetic and stylized, and um, I, I take it the, the Black books are not. Well, they're stylized in their way, but they're not, uh, they don't have that, poetic intensity that I like to think the Vandal books have. My old friend, the novelist John McGahan, used to make a nice distinction. He said that there's verse and there's prose and then there's poetry, and poetry can happen in either medium. And I think that's true. I try to give my books, as I say, that poetic intensity that, that a good piece of verse has. Uh, some readers, <laughs> I mean many readers, find this somewhat disconcerting because people expect prose to be, you know, prosaic, to be straightforward and tell a story and not get in the way of the plot and so on. Um, but Bandwell doesn't write like that. You have to pay attention to Bandwell's books. W.A. Jordan said that the poem is the only work of art that you either take or leave. You know, you can look at a painting and think about what you're having for dinner. You can listen to a piece of music and think about your, you know, your troubles with your girlfriend or something but uh, a poem you either read it or you don't mm. uh, I think that's true and I like to I work very hard to make my Danville books to the same level of intensity as that you either read it or you don't mm -hmm. amazing how many people decide to take the latter course <laughs> Well, I, I've read that your work is black. I think you said, or whoever wrote this said, um, your work is black is about craft, whereas Banville, it's about art. It, you're an artist when you're Banville. I probably, I probably said that myself in one of my more pretentious moments. But yes, <laughs> I like I like Black's books because they are they're well crafted. They're as well crafted as I can. And you know, before you become an artist, you have to be a craftsman. That's not a very popular notion nowadays, but I still believe it to be true. You have to learn your craft before you can attempt art. And, uh, you know, I've been practicing my craft for the past 50 years, and uh, now I'm using it. It's a bit dangerous. W.B. Uh, Yeats's father, who was a wonderful influence on Yeats, uh, wrote to him once, uh, I think it's a marvelous thing. He said, you know, an artist must have a great facility and never use it. Mm. 
uh, and perhaps I'm using my facility, but uh, I'm using it, you know, under a pseudonym, writing different kinds of books. Hmm. It seemed a waste to have this facility and not use it for something. <laughs> and I do like writing about uh, these characters in the black books. They interest me. They, you know, I, I discovered late in life the pleasure of moving characters around like chess men. I'd never been much interested in that before. And, you know, leaving them hanging at the end of a book and deciding when the next book starts up, you know, I'll send them in this direction or that direction. I'll give them a new lover or a, a new interest or a new crime to commit. Um, that's, you know, that there, is a, there is a pleasure to be had in that. And I hope that pleasure communicates itself to the reader. It's certainly meant to. Yeah, and e- even though you say that, you know, we write basically one long book or, or many books that are all the same book, um, I would think that there's a difference in having um, a series character, as you do with the Benjamin Black series, whereas you know he's going to be in every book. That's true, but I have a sort of a... I have an urge toward writing a series. I'm not sure why. The present book, um, Ancient Light, the main character and his daughter and his wife, they've appeared in a previous book, um, in Eclipse. And Cass, the daughter, has appeared in a previous book, Shroud. So in a way, this is the third part of, uh, of a series of three books. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't give it the grand title of a trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm not quite sure why I went back to, to Alex. It was obviously unfinished business there. Mm. But yes, it is odd. I take your point. It is odd to have a character that you must return to. I mean, my quirk character, my, my, uh, he's a pathologist in Dublin in the 1950s. He's the main character of my Benson Black book. Um, I'm sort of stuck with him. But it's interesting because it's like being put in jail with somebody, you know, <laughs> into a small cell. When you get in there first, you think, oh, my God. <laughs> This person is going to drive me mad. But then as time goes on, you begin to realize that this person is quite interesting, mm. you know, uh, and has all kinds of depth that you didn't know about, that I didn't know about. So I, I find new things about him all the time. And then the people around him are interesting. I mean, his daughter, Phoebe, um, my agent says that I'm in love with Phoebe, but I, I think that I am Phoebe. I think if there's anybody in the books who's me, it's Phoebe. Mm. Um, so she interests me from that point of view. She's my... She's my, my, my rather sick presence in the book, <laughs> in the books. Interesting. I'd love to hear you read from Ancient Light. Will you do that? Oh, well, yes, I'll read a page from it. Um, this is a little experience that Alex Cleave and his wife Lydia have. Uh, Lydia sleepwalks, and she, um, she sort of runs about the house thinking that her daughter is still alive. Um, so this is one of those occasions. I'm thinking of the morning after the very first one of Lydia's nocturnal rampages when she had started up from the pillow convinced our recently dead Cass was alive and in the house somewhere. Even when the panic was over and we had dragged ourselves back to bed, we did not get to sleep again, not properly, but lay on the bed on our backs for a long time. The curtains were thick and tightly drawn, shut, and I did not realize the dawn had come up until I saw forming above me a brightly shimmering image that spread itself until it stretched over almost the entire ceiling. At first I took it for an hallucination generated out of my sleep-deprived and still half-frantic consciousness. Also, I could not make head or tail of it, which is not surprising, for the image, as after a moment or two I saw, was upside down. What was happening was that a pinhole-sized opening between the curtain was letting in a narrow beam of light that had turned the room into a camera obscura and the image above us was an inverted dawn flesh picture of the world outside and there was the road below the window with its blueberry blue tarmac and near in the shiny black hump that was part of the roof of our car and the single silver birch across the way slim and shivery as a naked girl and beyond all that the bay pinched between the finger and thumb of its two piers the north one and the south and then the distant paler azure of the sea that at the invisible horizon became imperceptibly sky. How clear it all was, how sharply limbed. I could see the sheds along the north pier, their asbestos roofs dully agleam in the early sunlight, and in the lee of the south pier the bristling amber-coloured masts of the sailboats jostling together at anchor there. I fancied I could even make out the little waves on the sea, with here and there a gay speckle of foam. 
Thinking still that I might be dreaming or deluded, I asked Lydia if she could see this luminous mirage, and she said yes, yes, and reached out and touched my hand tightly. We spoke in whispers, as if the very action of our voices might shatter the frail assemblage of light and spectral colour above us. The thing seemed to vibrate inside itself, to be tinily a tremble everywhere, as if it were the teeming particles of light itself, the streaming photons that we were seeing, which I suppose it was, strictly speaking. Yet surely we thought, surely this was not entirely a natural phenomenon for which there would be a perfectly simple scientific explanation. Surely this was a thing given to us, a gift, a greeting, in other words, a sure sign sent to comfort us. And we lay there watching it all struck for, oh, I do not know how long. As the sun rose, the inverted world above us was setting, retreating along the ceiling until it developed a hinge at one edge and began sliding steadily down the far wall and poured itself at last into the carpet and was gone. Straight away we got up, what else was there to do, and started our dealings of the day. Were we comforted? Did we feel lightened? A little, until the wonder of the spectacle to which we had been treated began to diffuse to slip and slide and be absorbed into the ordinary fibrous texture of things. Mm. It's lovely. It's quite lovely. Thank you. That was uh, John Banville reading from Ancient Light. And uh, I haven't checked to see if this book is on audio um, or audible, but uh, if, it I- if it isn't, uh, you should be the reader. <laughs> I think it is already on audio. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about these things. Uh. I think it is. Yeah. Anyway, thank you. I love love hearing you read. Uh, We're going to take a very short break. All of you out there, please stay with us. We'll be back with John Banville in just a couple of minutes. Don't go anywhere. to see you go Come back baby Let's talk it over One more time My heart's full of sorrow Mama aching tears Gone 24 hours child Seemed like a thousand years Come back, baby, let's talk it over one more time. Let's talk it over before you go away Come back baby, let's talk it over one more time Weekly Signals the only weekly news commentary radio broadcast that features a dog named Molly. Weekly Signals with Nathan Callahan and Mike Kaspar. News with a bite. Friday mornings at 8 here on KUCI 88.9 FM. Radio that keeps on giving. Listen to Writers on Writing every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on 88.9 FM, KUCI, in Irvine. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI.
its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. And welcome back to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and on the web at KUCI.org. And I remain Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and my guest has been the novelist John Banville. Let's bring him back on. Hi there. Hello. I'd like to hear that program at the Talking Dog. (laughs) Weekly signals. I might try to tune in. (laughs) That's a good one. It's a good show. It's definitely a good show. Um... I find it interesting that in Ancient Light, and again, I have nothing to compare it to because it's the first book of yours that I've read, and as I go on and read your others, I'll have some point of comparison, but I find there is so little dialogue in the book, and uh, with most novels, it does seem that the lack of dialogue just slows the entire enterprise down, but it doesn't with Ancient Light. Ancient Light has a velocity to it that just um, kept... My interest kept me with it. Um, I continued to find it compelling throughout. Took me to the end. What about that? I mean, did you? Was that a conscious decision? Is that a, a conscious decision in your work and your and your literary novels? Um, what can you say about that? Yeah, I think that I suppose in a way I'd prefer to do without dialogue at all. Um, but that makes for a very. I'm a, I suppose it's. A, silly point to make, but it makes a very, very grey page to look at. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it looks a bit daunting even to me. So dialogue does break it up, um, but I don't think dialogue functions very much. I mean, in my in my Benjamin Black books, people are always talking to each other and telling each other things, uh, as they must do in, in crime fiction. In my Bandle books, they're always talking either to themselves or talking past each other's shoulders. Um which is how I think people actually do talk. Um, I often feel that we, you know, <laughs> especially if you have one of those arguments where, uh, you know, you, you, you're you both going out at hammer and tongs, and then you just realize that you're talking about entirely different things. <laughs> and that you're talking to yourself, and you're justifying yourself, and you're, you know, screaming about all the injustices done to you by the world. Um, that's... That's how I think human relations are, for the most part. I think uh, maybe it's in this book or one of the others, I can't remember. He says, you know, love is a matter of two mirrors clasped facing each other, you know. Mm. Uh, and I think this is true. Uh, I think that we, when we, you know, fall in love first, we seize on this this, this object and we make it into a, a, a god, um, you know, it's just an ordinary human being that we've fallen in love with, as we rapidly find out. And at that stage, love turns into something else, or some other kind of love. But in those, in that early uh, hysterical stage of, of being in love, um, we are, I think, looking at ourselves in this in this mirror that we've fashioned, this beautifully burnished and, and gilded mirror uh, that we make of the other person. That always interests me, the way in which we're constantly regarding ourselves and that the only we only I've been reading a lot of Henry James recently and you know he, he's wonderful at this the way in which we very very rarely actually look at other human beings or take notice of human beings we're so absorbed in ourselves but it's in those moments when we do look at and do take regard of other people that we make extraordinary discoveries and we come most fully alive and that's one of the great one of the great um, lessons of, of the Master is that uh, it's when we when we deal directly with other people that we, we, we deal most directly with ourselves and our own lives. Hmm. And you also you also are, are a scriptwriter. Yes, I love writing scripts. Uh, it's uh, it's great fun. It's an entirely different discipline. Um, when you write scripts, you write flat. You know, you you. In a novel, uh, a line of dialogue or a line of description has to do all the work. You know, there won't be any other help. This has to has to make images and 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 uh, emotions, and passions in the reader's imagination. 
But when you write a script, you know, in a way, the script is the least of it. It's true that you, you know, you have to have a good script or you want to have a good movie. Mm -hmm. But the script itself, especially the dialogue, is, it has to be written very flat so that the actors and the directors and the lighting director and the costume people, they, they give flesh to the words. So that's, it's, you know, it's very interesting from that point of view to write an entirely different, entirely different medium. It's almost, it's not like writing at all for me. It's some other kind of process. I mean, if I could write, if I could type quickly enough, I would write a film script in real time. You know, I would write it in an hour and a half. I would play it in my head and write it down. Um, that's how I do it. Whereas if I write as Van Bogle or even as Black, I'm wrestling with words and trying to make words. You know, I'm squeezing them like grapes until the pips come out, until they give up their juice, until they... They give every every drop of meaning that can be squeezed out of them. Whereas when I'm writing a script, you know, as I say, the words are flat on the page and they don't do any work. Hmm. So do you, does that make sense? Does yeah, it does. It, it makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, you know, and you ha so it seems that you have these three very different um, ways of writing. Well, I have many different ways of writing. I also write book reviews. Um, quite extensive book reviews, for instance, the New York Review of Books, which are three, four thousand words long. Um, I write a little bit of journalism now and then these days, you know, the odd feature and so on. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I am in a way an old-fashioned journeyman writer. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm not precious. I'm not a snob. Um, you know, I'm, I will turn my hand to anything that, uh, that interests me or that's going to pay me. Uh, and I think, I wish writers would get back to that. I think that, again, I was talking earlier about that change in direction that was taken uh, <clears throat> at the early part of the 20th century, uh, we, you know, when we could have followed James's example rather than the example of Joyce, for instance. Um, but the, the, the precious image that the writer, that the artist developed of himself then was not healthy, I think. Um, and it, it created false expectations in the audience, you know. Now we're regarded as special beings, as priests, as sages, as shamans. Um, you know, we're, we're not. We're just human beings who have this itch to, to dabble in words and to express the world through words. That's all we do. We, we haven't got any special knowledge. And as I say, I wish we could get back to being, uh, you know, Craftsmen first, and then, incidentally, artists. Mm. So, uh, I'm curious then with with different forms. I know I know of authors who have um, who work on different projects, and they have a different room for every project. Or, of course, they're not people in in California or anywhere where uh, rent is high. But but uh, you know, others you know they might work on their fiction in a cafe and work on their nonfiction. Somewhere else, or one is longhand, one is on the computer. Does your process differ for the different projects? Oh, yes, it does. By the way, if you think rent is uh, high in <laughs> Southern California, you should try Ireland, my dear. <laughs> um, yes, it's an entirely different process. I write with a fountain pen and a handmade book. I have a friend who's a bookbinder. He makes very beautiful books for me. Uh, with very good paper, which is resistant to the, the nib. You know, it, it, mm. so I get the right speed for writing. Uh, writing directly onto this, the word process, it would be much too fast for Banbo. Um, but it's just the right speed for black. Mm. So I write in black straight onto the screen, but Banbo, you know, scratches away hour after hour after hour these pages. And it takes Banbo three, four, five years to write a book. It takes black, uh, you know, three, four, five months to write a book. The difference, I'd like to think, is that with Banbo, the result that you get from Banbo is a result of concentration. What you get from Black is a result of spontaneity. Because hmm. often, you know, Banbo leans over Black's shoulder and says, you know, that's an interesting looking sentence. Let's try to push that around and make something out. Black says, no, no, let's leave it. It's fine as it is. Let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move on. Um, so they have to resist each other. 
And sometimes Black interferes with Van Bull and tries to say, you know, move on and leave it alone. <laughs> says, no, it can't be done. I have to keep scratching away at this until it's as right as I can get it. So these are two entirely different processes. Then when I write book reviews, I try to do them in a sitting, no matter how long they are, because I feel that, again, spontaneity is necessary in a book review. You have to try to get in a book review that, that heat of enthusiasm that you get from a book that you love or that you hate. You have to try to communicate that, and that has to be done quickly and spontaneously. So, you know, real crime writers get very annoyed at me when I say that I write the, the black books much more quickly than the vulnerable books. I don't see why, by the way, because Jules Simino, one of the greatest crime writers of all time, used to write his books in about 10 days. Um, so I don't see what, you know, speed is neither here nor there. It's what you put into it that counts. I mean, Simenon used to be so absorbed in his book in those 10 days that he used to be physically sick every morning before mm. he started work. Uh, or maybe it was in the evening after he'd finished work. You know, it was, it was, it was visceral, literally visceral with him. And uh, I like to think that that's somewhat the same with me. It is, it's, it's, it's a gutsy business. Um, Whereas Banbrough, I suppose, you know, well, he has to take cognizance of his guts, as we all do. Uh, I think he lives more in his mind or works more in his mind than Black does. So, you know, entirely different media, mm. entirely different ways of working. I, I found a Charlie Rose episode that uh, you were the guest on, I think it was uh, July of 2011, and... You said, I found it so interesting what you said, um, that I had to write it down and think about this. And you said, sentimentality is the death of art. Oh, yes, it is, don't you think? Well, yeah, I'd love to hear you say more about that, though. Well, uh, James Joyce has a wonderful definition of sentimentality. He says it's unearned emotion. Mm. I think that's, that's about, you know, it's about the best definition you're going to get. So if you put emotion into a book, you know, you, know, you, you sort of ratchet up the, the tears and the heart-wrenching stuff and so on. Um, that's unearned, you know, it, uh, as in life. I mean, sentiment is all important, but sentimentality is, is the death, I think, because it's fake. It's false, and you cannot write falsely. You can do, you know, you can be the greatest liar in the world in your life, but when you sit down to write, if you don't write honestly, you will not produce anything worthwhile. And very few writers that I know of do lie, and some, some great monsters like Louis Ferdinand Céline, who was not a very nice character at all, you know, great anti-Semite and so on, um, not as bad as people paint him to be, but pretty bad. His book, uh, Voyage au bout de la nuit, uh, Voyage to the End of Night, is an absolute masterpiece, and it's absolutely honest and truthful. Um, so there is this break between, you know, as T.S. Eliot said, between the, what is it, the person who f suffers and the artist who creates. I mean, there has to be. I don't see art as in any way a process of self-expression. Uh, I agree with Eliot that it's an escape from personality into impersonality, and that's where real art is made. People get very worried when they hear me talk like this because they think <laughs> I'm talking for a cold art or a, a feelingless art. I'm not at all. Uh, one feels most deeply, I think, when one has reached the point of impersonality in, in making art. And I think every artist knows that. They don't all admit it, but uh, I think that it, it has to be done that way. You can't write in, in, in the white heat of emotion. You can write in the white heat of artistic enthusiasm, maybe. You know, and the word enthusiasm is wonderful because it means literally to have that the God has infused us uh, with something we have been enthused. Uh, you, yes, you, you have to have that when you write, but emotional heat, you can't have that. You have to be absolutely cool. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm applying everything you're saying to uh, Ancient Light, which... Uh is such an emotional book, and um, I, you know, you you feel the protagonist's longing, yearning for this woman from so long ago in his life, and um, you know, as a reader, I wanted him to find her again. Of course, well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say more about that for people who haven't read read it yet, but. Um, so, you know, through your words, through the way 
you wrote this book. There's such yearning and um, emotion, you know. Well, there has to be passion. I mean, passion is the word we're looking for. If there isn't passion, then there's nothing. Uh, But, of course, passion, again, is wrought in the coolness of the study. Um, You make passion on the page not by being passionate in the soul. Mm -hmm. One has to live passionately in order to write passionately, but one cannot be passionate when one is writing. But, of course, one has to get passion onto the page, into the reader's imagination. One has to, you know, try to shake the heart of the reader, you know, and make the reader weep if necessary. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the aim. And, and back to what you said, I think it's the honesty of the writing of the characters, um, the vulnerability of the characters, rather than what what you see new writers do or people new to writing is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, exclamation points, a lot of hyperbole, a lot of um, modifiers to to try to oh, get I, that yes, across. I, I have great sympathy with that. I mean, I did mm-hmm. it myself because sure. when we start to write, if we're any good at all. And if we're at all honest with ourselves, we realize how little we can do, how undeveloped our style is. I mean, when I started to write, and when I was, you know, when I'd written my third, fourth, and fifth book, there were scenes and ideas and things that I would avoid because I knew I couldn't do them. I didn't have the technical skill to bring them off. Um, Now that I've been doing it for so long, I don't avoid those things. I can do pretty well anything I want but that of course brings its dangers because when you get to a point where you can say anything that's exactly what you may do is just say anything so you have to beware of facility that facility that Yeats's father was talking about you have to keep it fresh you have to keep making yourself pitting yourself against things that you are going to find very difficult and maybe impossible Uh, that's where that's where art really happens, is when the artist pits himself against the impossible. And in a way, you know, writing a sentence is impossible because when you sit down to a blank page and you think, <laughs> there is literally an infinite number of ways that I can write this sentence. How am I, how on earth am I to decide on one of them? Uh, part of the process of learning to be a writer is learning to blank out all the other possibilities and sticking with one. Um, And hence the young writer's uh, efforts at, you know, stabs at being passionate, the the overwriting, the exclamation marks and so on. As I say, I did it myself. We all do it. It's Mm -hmm. where we start. Mm -hmm. Learning to be impersonal, learning learning, learning to write is a very, very difficult and long process. Hmm. We have a few minutes left with John Banville. His most recent book is Ancient Light, published by Knopf. Um, you've said that you settled in Ireland because of the light, and I find that so interesting and would love to hear you say more about place and uh, light and its influence on your work. Yes, people. <laughs> <laughs> when I extol the Irish climate, people can't believe that I'm not, you know, being ironic or trying to make a joke but I do I love this climate I think it's absolutely ideal um, you can have five or six seasons in one day uh, it looks absolutely beautiful uh, the light especially this time of year especially in late autumn early winter uh, there's a particular kind of pearly silvery quality to the light here that's absolutely ravishing um, I would find it very hard to do without that. I need it in some way that I don't quite understand. The only place I've ever been that I felt had anything like the same kind of light as Copenhagen. Um, but I wouldn't want to live up there. It's a bit too far north. But yes, I, I like it here. Um, I The country infuriates me, as everybody's country infuriates everybody. Um, but uh, yes, I'm sort of stuck here. Anyway, you know, there's a... Somebody once asked <laughs> the poet Philip Larkin, who was very much a, a homebody, you know, and he had settled in Hull in the north of England, and everybody in London regards as sort of, you know, complete backwater. And some interviewer said to him, you know, why did you settle in Hull so far away from the centre? <laughs> and Larkin said, 
the center of what? <laughs> it's a very good, very good answer because you know the notion that real life uh, is, is you know that one that one would live well sort of on the Côte d'Azur or, or in you know uh, some some exotic sunny place. Um, I wouldn't be able to work if I lived in such a place. I'd spend my time you know, lazing about and going to markets and so on. The nice thing about it here is that it's conducive to work. Uh, these long, dark winters, these rainy, uh, melancholy summers, perfect, perfect climate for, to work in, for me anyway. Mm-hmm. Back to ancient light, I am curious, um, in, in hearing how you work on, uh, as John Banvo versus uh, the Benjamin Black series um did, did the ending catch you by surprise of of ancient light or do, or were you writing toward it well if you mean the very ending there's a little scene at the end where he lies down in his mother's room uh that took me by surprise because i had i had a slightly different ending written for the book and uh i knew it was wrong something wrong with it. We're, we're talking about just a, a page here, a paragraph. Um, and then I was talking to my wife, and we were reminiscing how our son, when he was 11, 12, 13, used to have nightmares and used to come into our room and, you know, lay on this pallet beside the bed and would hold my wife's finger, you know, in his terror, you know, his night terrors that children have. And it's this struck me as such a beautiful beautiful notion, such a beautiful image that I had to use it, and it was a perfect, perfect thing for the end of the book. If you mean the broader ending, where we discover uh, lots of things that we didn't know at the start, um, no, I had to know them before I before I started. They, they had, that was the trajectory of the book, that it would move towards tragedy. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a book full of tragedies, but I like to think it's also full of light. I tried to make it as luminous as I could. Mm. But yes, it, it moves toward tragedy. But then, you know, <laughs> a friend of mine was planned to write a book which was going to be called Happy at First but Very Sad and Tragic <laughs> at the End. And then he said, there's no point in my writing it because that says everything. That's life, you know. <laughs> Happy at first but very sad and tragic at the end. That's great. Or as Philip Larkin, whom I've already mentioned, says, you know, life is first boredom, then fear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very cheerful poet, Bob. Um, but yes, it moves. It moves toward tragedy, as as all our lives do. It was it was unexpected for me how how the couple was found out. Very unexpected. Yes, well, yes, but again, that's like life. I yeah. mean, we jog along and nothing happens. And nothing happens. <laughs> and suddenly, one day, you know, we we fall off the edge of the pavement or, you know, run down by a horse and <laughs> carriage or something. And, uh, <laughs> you know, life <laughs> takes an entirely different direction. <laughs> I'm always surprised that people are surprised by the surprises that life brings. Um, I can't, you know, I, to me, I'm constantly waiting for, <laughs> waiting for the worst and waiting for the best as well. You know, it's, uh, it's a wonderful adventure of being alive. I mean, you know, who would exchange it for anything else? Mm. Who would want to leave this? this marvelous place that we've been thrown into. Hmm. Will uh, Mrs. Gray show up in a prequel? No, I don't think so. No, Mrs. Gray is, Mrs. Gray has, has, has done her best. <laughs> she's given she's given all she could give, Mrs. Gray. Hmm. But I do rather love her and I miss her. She's one of the very few characters I've made whom I do miss. I suspect there's a lot of my own mother in her, which hmm. probably shocked people. Yeah. But uh, I had no... I had no lascivious designs whatsoever on my mother, but Mrs. Gray's ordinariness and her her sort of ordinary loving kindness and her her care, I suppose I took mm. a lot of that from my own mother yeah, and from all the women I've ever known who've, you know, who've nurtured me and taken care of me and tried their best to make me grow up. Failed, of course, but at least they tried <laughs> their best. <laughs> yeah, she was wonderful. Wonderful character. Well, what I like about her is that she's She's very real. She's not romanticized. There's no sentimentality there. She's a perfectly ordinary person, not particularly beautiful, not particularly voluptuous, but wonderfully passionate, wonderfully kind, wonderfully funny. 
and she takes care of uh, young Alex, you know, like nobody's business. Mm. Yes, she does. Well, uh, well, I mean, you know, people say to me, oh, well, it must be based on an experience of your own. I say, God, I wish it were. <laughs> I wish I'd had someone like Mrs. Gray when I was 15. <laughs> I tell you there, I'd certainly be a different person. And whatever about college, Mrs. Gray would certainly have changed me. <laughs> Oh, gee, this hour has flown by entirely too fast. Um, I wonder if, if uh, we could end with uh, your advice or, or tips or any way, to, uh, any, write, any way to write yourself out of something that's not working. What, what do you do? Or, or does that ever happen to you, that you're, you're in a place with your writing that's not working and you need to write your way out of it or, or get your... Find a way well, out. Well, you write your way out of it. So, and when the poet Rainer Maria Rilke went to see the sculptor Holdown in Paris, so Holdown was something of his hero, and Rilke was something of a aesthete, you know, you know, in his white gloves and his prissy ways. And Rodin sort of knocked sense into him and said, you know, il faut travailler, il faut toujours travailler. One must work. Mm-hmm. One must always work. And this was a wonderful piece of advice. He said to Rilke, go to the Jardin de Plante, look at the, go to the zoo, look at the, one of the animals there, just study it. Spend a week studying it and then write a poem about it. And the result was one of the earliest of, of his great poems, The Panther. Very small poem, uh, very particular. And I, that's the only advice I would give to writers is to look at the world and, uh, and then try to interpret it. And there's a wonderful old Roman, I forget who it was, Cato the Censor or somebody, he had a wonderful little tag. He said, um, what was it? Oh, Lord. I can't remember the Latin now, but what it meant was uh, hold fast to the object and the words will follow. Mm. Uh, rem tene verbum sequenter. Yes, hold fast to the object and the words will follow. And that's absolutely true. You look at the thing. You concentrate absolutely on the thing that you're going to write about and the words will follow. Mm. It won't be easy, and they won't follow easily. They won't trip off your tongue or off the end of your pen, but they will come. Mm. Thank and you. work, work, work. Nothing mm. else for yes. it but work. Yes, yeah, stay in the chair. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time with us today. Thank you, I enjoyed it. Thank you. That was John Banville. His most recent book is Ancient Light. I encourage all of you to, uh, to read this book. Um, Keep it close to you. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, work of fiction. And I'm going to be reading his other work, and I very much want to check out Benjamin Black's series and see what's going on there. We're at the end of our time. Um, you've been listening to Writers on Writing on 88.9 FM, KUCI. You can find out more about the show at penonfire.com. We have a speaker series happening January 15th with agents and an editor called An Evening with Publishing Honchos. It's on penonfire.com. Have a wonderful week, wonderful holiday, and and I'll be back here uh, in a couple weeks. See you soon.